True believers should know something. True believers should know that it is not a healthy thing at all to live their lives always focusing on and being consumed by their needs. That can end up being a very selfish way of living. And needs can be elevated to such a level that then they cross a line and they become idols. We read about idols in Psalm 15 this morning, literal idols, but we can make idols of other things to the point that they control us, to the point that we worship them. And when we make our own needs idols in our lives that we cannot be happy unless some need is met, then we end up really just worshiping ourselves. So it's a problem to focus on needs all the time. But don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that we don't have any needs. We do have them. And some of our needs are important, at least some needs are more important than others. Well, fortunately, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, knows what our greatest needs are, even when we don't. And it is those greatest needs that he prays for when it comes to his intercession on behalf of his people. We talked about this last week, and I read Romans 8.27 to you. I'll read a portion of that again today, Romans 8.27. He, Christ, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now that intercession, that intercessory ministry by the Lord began, in a sense, on the night before his crucifixion, which is what we're studying here on Sunday morning, Jesus' prayer in John 17. Now, so far, we found Jesus praying for himself. That was verses 1 to 5. Then in verses 6, all the way through verse 19, we find Jesus praying for the 11 disciples, 12 minus 1, leave out Judas, the 11 faithful disciples, Jesus praying for them, those men who were still with him, that's verses 6 through 19. That section began in verses 6 through 8 with Jesus rehearsing, first of all, the reasons that he could pray for them. And then last week we found in verses 9 to 11 some statements by the Lord as part of his prayer, but statements that help us understand just how unique this prayer really was and is. Well, today we start looking at the actual petitions Jesus made on behalf of those men. And as we will see, a key concern had to do with what he knew was their greatest needs. One of those we will start looking at today, the protection that they would need by God the Father once Jesus had departed the world. And just as a timely comment, it is still true today that Jesus knows what our greatest needs are. So in heaven... At the right hand of majesty on high, Scripture continually tells us that Jesus continually intercedes for us, his people. And as we read in Romans a moment ago, he intercedes based upon the will of God. He, he always intercedes in such a way that his requests are in accord with the will of God. So knowing that ought to certainly be an encouragement to us. And along those lines, I should add this thought, just so you'll be even more encouraged. The Holy Spirit also prays for us. That's also in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings 
too deep for words. The Spirit prays the will of God. Jesus prays the will of God. Yes, we are to pray for ourselves, of course. We are to pray for one another. But we don't always know the right things to pray. We certainly don't have an understanding perfectly of what God's will is in every circumstance. We are weak people. We have many imperfections. We have to to deal with the, the spiritual limitations that are true about us. All of that really keeps us from praying as we ought to pray, which is consistently according to God's will. We are grateful, therefore, that Jesus and the Spirit intercede on behalf of every Christian, faithfully bringing our needs before God even when we are confused as to what exactly we should pray and confused about what our true needs are. So back to John 17, the prayer recorded here uh, provides a sort of a a snapshot, rather a better word would be a preview of that intercessory work uh, that goes on in heaven now, that intercessory work that began after his ascension back to heaven. And this prayer not only shows us just the depth of the intimacy that Jesus the Son had with God the Father and the communion he had with God the Father. It shows us that, but it also displays to us Jesus's great compassion for his sheep, for his own. Now specifically, Jesus made two requests from God the Father on behalf of his disciples, and we are going to just start our study of just the first request today. So here is request number one. Number one, a request for protection, a request for protection. But a question is begged, obviously, protection from what? Well, that request for protection can actually be broken down and we can identify four types of protection that we need. Here's the first type, protection from, number one, from straying from straying, in other words, going astray, in particular, theologically. Now, we're picking up with the second half of verse 11 today because last week we included the first part of verse 11 with that study. But in the second half, notice how Jesus addresses God the Father. He says in verse 11, Holy Father. Let's pause there a moment. You need to know that that address is unique. It's in a form that's found only here in the fourth gospel. We find Jesus referring to God the Father just as Father at times. Coming up in this prayer in verse 25, we'll see him call God righteous Father, but Holy Father only here. So the thought of God that him being holy is certainly connected to an important verse that the Jews would certainly be familiar with in the Old Testament. It's Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. In Leviticus eleven forty-four, it says, I am Yahweh, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. That verse is quoted in the New Testament. Peter quoted it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says there in 1 Peter 1, 16, it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this God is perfectly holy, and yet he's not just holy one, he's holy father in this address that Jesus used. 
And this address, those two thoughts together, was intentionally chosen by Jesus because it combines two very important aspects about God in one title. First of all, God's transcendence. He's perfectly holy. And yet it combines his perfect holiness with the intimacy that we can know as part of God's family, he is also perfectly loving toward his own as a father. He is holy, but a holy father. Well, here's what Jesus goes on to ask the holy father on behalf of his disciples. Verse 11 continues, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Now, it is important to understand the intent of that request. This is a request that God would so protect them that they would live lives and minister and be kept in all of that loyal to all God's name represents, which means his character. As we've seen in previous studies, that's what the name, the idea of the name in Scripture means many times, that person's character. We touched on that back in verse 6. If you look Previous to what we're studying today, back in verse 6, it says, Christ said to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. And we talked about that then, that the name represents the very essence of God's being, all that he is, all about his character that's displayed and manifested in his attributes, his perfections that we find in Scripture for us today. It's the same idea here. The name represents all of the truth of who God is. So God's name means all that is conveyed in his attributes, all the aspects of his perfect character. And note how Jesus said it. He says, keep them in your name, not by your name. By your name is is a wonderful thought. That would mean, Father, keep them by the power that you have that's associated with who you are. And God certainly does that. But here he says, in your name. So in essence, to be kept in the name, is to be kept from going astray from the truth about who he is, which is another way of saying straying theologically. It is to be kept loyal to God's character. I mean, Jesus starts with that in his prayer because this would be one of their greatest needs. Now, he went on in verse 11 to emphasize that his perfect oneness with that Holy Father uh, is it is something to remember because the name of the Father is also the name which the Father has given the Son. Look how he says in verse 11. It's the name which you have given me. In other words, this is a way for Jesus to say that God had supremely revealed the truth about himself in Jesus. As we've seen, that reality that God has supremely and ultimately revealed himself through the Son, is a theme of this gospel. It's articulated very clearly in John 14, verse 9. Christ said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So in short, Jesus prayed that God would keep his true followers, true, loyal to the revelation of God that Jesus had given to them, not falling away from it, not straying into unbelief, not going astray into error and heresy. This is a huge concern on Jesus' part for them. He didn't pray that they would be comfortable. Didn't start with that. He didn't pray, Father, 
protect them so they'll be successful in, in this world and make a name for themselves. Help them to have a lot of possessions. No, he prayed that the Father would so protect them and so keep them in the knowledge and fear and service of the Lord that they would be true to that no matter what the cost would be in the days and years ahead. He prayed that his followers would be faithful to God's character and his truth and his commandments. Now, there's other ways in that the Bible voices this idea of the way we're supposed to live and loyal to the truth and to God. Here's the way, one way the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians 1, verse 27. He says, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So this faithfulness is what the disciples needed to be committed to, as opposed to straying from the truth. And they were going to need the Father's help for that, to live it out. And that's why Jesus prays for that. And of course, you get back and you look at that request and you realize this petition that Jesus made, that God would protect his people this way, to stay true to the name, that actually connects with and upholds a doctrine that we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This doctrine states that Christ's true people must persevere in the faith all the way to the end. They will not abandon that or they won't be saved in the end. But it also states that true believers will do that. True believers will persevere in loyalty and faithfulness to the end. And it's because of God's faithfulness in keeping them and protecting them. Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.6 when he wanted to encourage the, the Philippians that he was confident about something concerning them. Here's what he's confident in. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. They would persevere all the way to the end. So what Christ is praying for here is the will of God in this way that his people will be protected from straying. Here's a second type of protection that they needed. Number two, protection from division. Protection from division. Another concern when it comes to the list of their greatest needs was that this oneness that they had, it wasn't perfect, in the relationships with one another, but it was a certain kind of unity, a certain kind of oneness that it would be under threat once Jesus departed. So here's what he prayed, verse 11, that they may be one even as we are. Disunity is certainly a problem in Christianity in general. Certainly we all know that. We look at the at the landscape of Christianity in our world and disunity and division is a huge issue, and it's a huge problem, not only just at large, but in many churches in particular. So, was Jesus praying then that there would be no future denominations forming? Was he praying for only one individual church to be in each city? I shared this with you a long time ago, but it's been a while. Some of you have come to Twin City even after I said it. But uh, I mentioned it once before. It fits here. I'll mention it again. Something that I experienced, one of the many interesting things I experienced being part of a Grace Community Church out in Los Angeles. When I was there, two young men from Europe 
flew to L.A. They were flying around different cities in the United States. They flew to L.A. to meet with me for the purpose of trying to get me to get John MacArthur and Grace Church to support their vision, their efforts to dissolve all denominations and to just have one church in every city. And they were basing it on Jesus' prayer, this statement he said in John 17. They turned the Bible around and showed it to me. Wonder if I believe that or not. Of course, I'm thinking, well, I, I do believe it. I just don't believe what you're doing with it, you know. They were very naive, obviously. But is that what Jesus meant? was to them. No, not really. Jesus was not praying that Christians would form just one single massive <clears throat> worldwide denomination. In fact, it's not a good idea. If you want to see how bad an idea that is, look at church history in the medieval ages. It was a dark time for the church when the church was actually outwardly most unified. No, he's not praying for that. He's praying for what we could call a unity of spirit among his true people for the sake of the gospel mission. In other words, he's praying that all Christians would in unity devote themselves to what matters to the proclamation of the gospel in the world. Now this is first of all fulfilled as individual Christians do make sure they are plugged into a local body. They make sure that they're connected and actively fellowshipping and serving in a, in a Bible-teaching local church body. There is no such thing in Scripture as a, as, a, as a lone ranger Christian or an isolated Christian. Isolated believers are vulnerable to the world, to sin, even more so. So this prayer certainly includes the idea that his people would stay together in unity, even with Christians in some local body. But even beyond the local church, Christians are to exercise and enjoy a true spiritual unity with all those who have genuine faith in Christ. Even if we don't agree on certain things, when it comes to the major issues of who God is and who Christ is and what the gospel is, we are to have unity. There is to be love. I grew up hearing it called like precious faith. That's the way my father always said it. Someone would join our church and they, he would say they come from a church of like precious faith. Do you know Peter articulated something like that? It's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He tells you right there at the beginning of 2 Peter whom he was writing to. Here's whom he was writing to. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, such unity certainly does depend on what we saw at first, being kept in his name. And it therefore does depend on understanding and proclaiming the same gospel message, the same true gospel. One writer had this illustration of how, how it can take place, how it's accomplished. He, he used the illustration of an orchestra, instruments in an orchestra who, who all have to tune their instruments, but they all tune them to the same common pitch. So they'll be playing together in the same key. This writer went on to say, well, it's like that with believers. They, they gain this oneness, this kind of oneness, not, 
not just striving for unity itself, and certainly not just a visible organizational unity, but by focusing on and submitting to and loving the same object, and that is Christ. But Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. To say it differently, we're tuned to one another, the writer said, by each drawing nearer to the same Savior. And this leads to another reality about what Jesus prayed for here. This unity prayed for is a unity that already exists. It's a unity that is true of all believers as a result of God's divine grace working in their hearts. In other words, literally, Jesus did not pray that they would become one. He's praying that they would continually be one. In other words, there is an organic unity amongst all true believers, even if there are some things we don't agree with. And it's true that there is this organic unity amongst all true believers, whether or not they live in the same city. I tried to explain that to those men that day, that there are denominations here. We don't agree on everything, but if they love Christ and I love Christ, if they're born again and I'm born again, it is the fulfillment of that prayer. We have that unity, even if we don't attend the same church. All true regenerated believers possess the same life of God in their souls. It's the life that's produced by the Holy Spirit when he regenerates a a dead sinner and comes to indwell them. Paul articulates the organic unity this way. Ephesians 4, verses 3 to 6. Be diligent to preserve the unity. Not to make it happen, but just to preserve what's there. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the emphasis here in John 17 when Jesus prayed this was not on some sort of visible organizational unity that can fluctuate in this world, but on the real constant unity that is invisible He was praying for the essential oneness of believers that they do share in common in Christ. You know, and again, I mentioned it, but in a sense, this prayer is answered every time a believer comes to be saved. Every time a, a sinner is regenerated because all saved sinners have a genuine love for Christ. All saved sinners have a love for and commitment to the Word. Even if we we disagree on certain aspects of it, we say the same thing about the Word. It's the Word of God. All true believers have a genuine love for other people who love God. All genuine believers have a genuine desire to be different from the world and a genuine desire to fulfill the gospel mission that we've been left here on earth to fulfill, that Christ gave to us in the Great Commission. And just a final observation, notice that this unity is grounded in the very unity that God the Father and the God the Son shared. He said, even as we are, you and I, Father. Back in John chapter 10, verse 30, he spoke directly about that. He said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And the context of that verse there in John 10 makes it clear that the Father and the Son are one not only in in character, but in what they say and what they do, they were one in the mission. So ultimately, unity among disciples is unity in mission as well as unity for the sake of mission. And that is the kind of oneness that Jesus prayed that the Father would protect 
And that is the kind of oneness that we should demonstrate. Now, in verse 12, Jesus adds this idea that when he was on earth, he was the one protecting that. He was the one producing and guarding their loyalty to God and the unity that flows out of that. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. I was doing that, which you have given me, and I guarded them. Stop there so I can point out that Jesus used two different Greek words there for keeping and guarded. I mean, they're similar, but they're different terms. The first one, keeping, has the idea of restraining uh, while watching over and, and preserving something. The second one, guarded, refers to, to literal protection from outside dangers. But together, taken together, the words then just point to this complete deliverance and protection which results in then lasting security for God's people. And notice something else. Jesus said that he provided this protection not by the name God gave him. Once again, not by, but in the name God gave him in the revelation of God himself, which was the revelation, is the revelation found in Jesus. He and the Father are one. He guarded them. He kept them with one exception. Verse 12 goes on to say, Jesus was utterly faithful. He did it with one exception. Verse 12 says, And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Who's the one exception? Obviously, Judas Iscariot. He's here called in this verse by Jesus the son of perdition. That noun perdition is used in the New Testament to talk about future damnation and future and final condemnation. So it's a way to refer to Judas's destiny. Judas is the one known as the one doomed to perdition, final destruction. Now, you find this same expression in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, Paul uses it as another name for whom he calls the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And he calls the man of lawlessness there the son of destruction. It's the same group of words. Son of perdition, son of destruction. So really what we see in, in Judas is that he was a, a type of something. He was a, a type of Antichrist. He was a representative of, a, of all evil persons who were going to try to thwart what God's salvation purposes are in salvation history. And notice that that role that Judas had in fulfilling that evil scheme, Jesus said it was the fulfillment of Scripture. Prophesied in the Old Testament. The defection of Judas prophesied in the scriptures, that it would happen. Now, this is likely a reference to Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, verse 9, the psalmist writes there something about what was going on in his own life with, with another human being. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. In other words, has turned against me. And yet we find in John 13, verse 18, that that scripture is applied to Judas. It was not only describing something that happened in the psalmist's life, like a lot of scriptures, it had a far fulfillment in something else. It was a prophecy about Judas. So the point is, there was no failure on Jesus' part when he says, I, I did it, I protected him while I was here. So that they were kept true to the name, so that they were unified. No, there was no failure. He knew all along the truth about Judas. 
even when he picked him. He knew that Judas was a false disciple. He knew that he had chosen Judas so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Here's what we'd studied back in John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71 about this. John 6, 70 and 71. He's talking to the disciples. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, Judas, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You see, Jesus was not surprised by what Judas did. Jesus even chose Judas to put him in that position, the right position where he could accomplish his intended evil deed that was prophesied he would accomplish. So he didn't defect because Jesus failed to protect him. Judas fell because he was never a true disciple of Christ in the first place. Christ wasn't protecting people of the world. He was protecting his true followers. Judas fell because his role in Jesus' death was all part of God's sovereign, predetermined plan. Of course, that fact that it fulfills Scripture doesn't alter the fact that Judas is held responsible for it. He did make a decision as a responsible agent, and he is held accountable for that. He is judged for that evil act. Yet God, for his part, sovereignly overrode what Judas did, his evil, and used it, those evil designs, to bring about his own purpose. And God does that still today. Joseph understood that about God. Way back in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when his brothers, who had sold him into bondage years before, eventually they were brought to Egypt and were and Joseph was taking care of them, but eventually their father died. And the, and the son started thinking, his brothers, Joseph's brothers started thinking, maybe Joseph has been kind to us all this time because dad was still here. So they actually went to Joseph and asked him, now that he's gone, now that dad's died, what are you going to do to us? Are you going to get revenge? Here's what Joseph said in Genesis 50.20. This ought to be a memory verse for every one of you. Genesis 50.20. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Sounds a lot like Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good. I'm, I'm convinced that Joseph had read Romans 8.28 in his quiet time that morning and was reflecting on what he learned there. Human responsibility, Judas was at fault, all part of God's sovereign plan. Here it is again. Let me give you a quote from Leon Morris about that. God used that man's evil act to bring about his own purpose. There is a combination of the human and the divine. But in this passage, it is the divine aspect rather than the human aspect that is receiving stress. In the end, God's will was done in the handing over of Jesus to be crucified. So let me just summarize this point. Unity is a purpose of their being kept true to the name of God, the truth about God and His revelation in Christ. And this is what Jesus prayed that the Father would protect. But Jesus' prayer for His disciples intentionally included Judas. He didn't pray that for Him. So, a request for protection. And Jesus is, has our greatest needs, the greatest needs of His disciples on His mind. He, he prays that there would be protection from straying. Going astray, he prayed that there would be protection from division. And there's a third one we'll look at today, fourth one next week. Third, from despair. 
protection from despair. Get back and look at these. These are our greatest needs still. Our greatest needs is not just to be superficially happy. Our greatest needs is not to be successful and make a name for ourselves and to have a lot of material possessions. We, we need help in living in this world, never straying from all that the name of God represents. We need help in this world to focus on the right things and to be committed to the mission God has given to us, even with other believers. And we certainly need this help, protection from despair. We live in a world full of despair. Look at verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they might have my joy made full in themselves. So Jesus affirms that he knew his departure was imminent. He says, now I come to you, meaning it's, it's very soon, in the next few hours, you know, to a couple of days, and to the three days in the resurrection. But he also affirms something else. He affirms one of the reasons he had been giving all this instruction that we've been looking at in a few chapters now, on that fateful evening, the night before he was crucified. All that he said in the upper room and all that he continued to say as they walked over across Jerusalem to head toward the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what these things refer to there. These things I speak. The entire farewell discourse. And here's the reason. His desire was that his followers would not live in despair but in contrast, have joy. Just don't think wrongly about joy. This is not some sort of superficial happiness. He wants them to experience his joy. He even worded that way. Intentionally, he called it my joy. That was the joy that was based in him, but it was the joy he himself experienced. It was therefore the joy that was not dependent on circumstances. I mean, he was facing the most horrible circumstances ever. Still had this joy. This is a joy based upon the eternal purposes of God for your life. It was joy that Jesus experienced that came from knowing that the Father was pleased with him and, and his obedience. And this is the joy we can experience, and therefore we do not have to live in despair. Now, of course, many have trouble with this. They don't have trouble saying they have joy when everything's working out. That's different. When we're on top of the world, we say. The challenge is so delighting in the Lord when nothing very good is happening. When everything's been stripped away, perhaps, and, and we have only Him, only Christ, that we still experience joy. No doubt, to live in joy, even in the most difficult times, is the work of God. And that's why Jesus was praying for this. And that is why in Scripture it's even called the joy of the Lord. Nehemiah 8, verse 10. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So Jesus prayed that the Father would so protect the disciples that no circumstance would bring them to despair, but instead they would know not just joy, but he said full joy. Now I mentioned to you already a few times that where this is taking place, likely in the, in the Kidron Valley there at the brook at the bottom just before they ascend the Mount of Olives to enter the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus stopped, lifted up his face to heaven and begins to pray and then finally gets to this place. Holy Father, here are my requests. I'm praying about their greatest needs they're going to have. And I mentioned to you that the disciples were all there, those 11. 
he's praying aloud, they're listening in. That had to have been an incredible experience for the disciples that night to hear Jesus praying as he did for these things, to hear Jesus praying that the Father would literally guarantee through his protection that they would make it all the way to the end and persevere and experience eternal glory praying that the Father would so protect them that fear would be removed so that they would not fail and so they would have His joy. What a night that must have been for them. There is a fourth type of protection that we'll look at next time and then we'll move on to the second request next time as well. For today, I just want to leave you with a couple of concluding thoughts. Many times when I do this, they're just my, my, thought, my concluding thoughts from the study. First, it has to do with that address, Holy Father. Only God deserves this title, Holy Father. It's a unique title. It's used only of God in Scripture. Why am I emphasizing that? Because it is tragic that this very important title is misused by some. Who? Roman Catholics. That false system, which Roman Catholicism is, brazenly commits blasphemy by applying this title to whom? The Pope. The so-called head of the Roman Catholic Church. That is a shameful error. Not to mention the fact that Jesus himself said this in Matthew 23, verse 9, do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. Don't call me Father Carey. Father Kevin, Father Gumpert, you know, so forth. Father Kyle. I grew up in an environment where a brother was okay. We're brothers, you know. Not father. One holy father. That was one thought. Here's the second one, the other one. It's about joy. I mean, this reminds us, since Jesus was praying for this, joy is to be a mark of the followers of Christ. I mean, we should be known for this. In fact, so much so that the Apostle Paul issued it as a command. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord every time you have a good day. Rejoice in the Lord when things are going well and when you're on top of the world. No. Rejoice in the Lord. What does it say? Always. Always. So important, he said. Again, I say, rejoice. It's just that we need to understand where this joy comes from. It doesn't come from the world. Not this kind of joy. It doesn't come from situations and circumstances. I mean, the world is fickle. It'll lull you in and make promises to you and then rob you of them and you're left with an empty bag. Instead, we gain joy in knowing that Christ, our high priest, died for our sins. And even beyond that, we have joy in knowing that he is presently interceding for us in heaven. We rejoice to know that whatever happens in this life, in Christ, we are being kept all the way to the end for eternal glory. And it doesn't matter what goes on here. 
we know that in Christ we will be someday ushered into heaven, into the very everlasting delight that's going to be true of existing in the presence of God forever. Put all the trials of this world and difficulties on the scale. Put that on the other side. It outweighs it. It is therefore not only our privilege to live in joy, but it's our duty to respond to the sovereignty of God and the grace that we find in Christ with rejoicing and thankfulness to God. Obviously, practically, the way to rejoice is we live in close communion with Christ through his word and through prayer and fellowship and willingly and humbly submitting to the, whatever he's doing in our, in our lives. So you make that personal. Do you struggle with this? Do you struggle to rejoice always as a Christian? We're so frail, we're so weak, but here's part of the problem. It's a big part of the problem. We focus too much on the world and our circumstances and our trials rather than Christ. If we're thinking rightly, again, we will experience joy just in the reality of knowing him, just knowing that we're saved, just knowing that we're going to go to heaven when we die. Obviously, this is a joy only available for his sheep, his true believers. It's a joy available to us only because of the redemption Christ purchased by his death on the cross to pay for our sin. And it is that atoning work on the cross to pay for our sin that we remember this morning as we observe the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the necessary reset in our thinking. How you bring us together here on the Lord's Day, not just to have some emotional experience, something shallow like that, but to have our minds renewed, our thinking changed, so that our priorities are, are corrected, so that we can think your thoughts after you, thoughts from Scripture that are true. Especially on a passage like this, we're so thankful for your ministry in our lives, the Son praying for us, the Holy Spirit praying for us, but praying for what our greatest needs are still today. We, we have such a skewed understanding of that, Father. We confess that. We get so focused on ourselves and what we think we need and even the need of our children, what we think is most important for them, and we forget to really pray for others and for ourselves, these same kind of things. Praying for our children that they would not stray theologically. Pray that, that they would understand the unity that exists in the body of Christ for the mission and, and prayer for them that they would be protected from despair and know the joy of the Lord. May we be mindful to pray that for one another. But Lord, we also confess that we make idols out of our needs. And so Lord, we thank you that in Christ, all of our sin, all of our failures, all of our limitations are paid for, past, present, and future, because of the cross. So Lord, as we remember what our Savior did for us so that we can know the reality of these things in our lives, may our hearts be encouraged to think about his great sacrifice. In his name we pray, amen.